So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Um, I'm going to read a f- few verses uh, to kind of get us started and, and, and talk about those. Um, but really, we'll take the rest of the chapter here this morning. Um, there are, what we're going to find today is that there are, there are some things uh, that only spiritual people can know and comprehend. In other words, in order for someone to access certain things about reality, one must be spiritually alive. Uh, This idea kind of butts heads against uh, at least some of the contemporary worldviews that we encounter, Um, one being, how many of you ever heard of scientism? Anybody? Scientism is a um, something you're hearing more and more about, given the just the modern era in which we live and the advancements and progressions in uh, technology and other scientific advances. But simply stated, scientism uh, believes that everything can be investigated through scientific inquiries. Um, that is, we can answer any question. Forget about Slido for a second, right? Just ask the scientists. And, um, it's not that we have every answer to every question. It's just that through scientific process and investigation, we can give us enough time and we can uh, ultimately answer those things. Related to that, um, something that you might have heard of called naturalism. And that is that everything can be explained through natural and material reality and processes. And everything is completely knowable. Again, it's not that we have come to a place where we have actually experienced what it means to comprehend everything, but that's just because we haven't had enough time or technology hasn't gotten us far enough uh, to comprehend that which is unknown, but that everything is ultimately knowable. And so again, this kind of, contradicts the premise that I'm suggesting this morning, and that is that there are some things only spiritual people can know and comprehend. Now, the good news, if that scares you, if that makes you, um, you're not familiar with, with me, with uh, our church, and you hear something like that, and you're just rolling your eyes thinking, oh, here we go, right? The religious know-it-all, setting things up uh, to, uh, to convince us that, you know, um, that religion, specifically his religion, you know, this guy's religion um, can tell us everything that uh, we ought to know or that we'd want to know. And so let me just, again, as sort of another premise that goes along with the idea that there are some things only spiritual people can know and comprehend. The good news is that anybody can access the subject of our talk today, this thing that can only be known by those who are spiritual, and that is the hidden wisdom of God. Now, we've kind of been dancing around this, um, this idea of God's wisdom as it often stands against the wisdom of the world, right? That has been uh, a subject that we have been hitting from different angles over the last few weeks. And Paul, he continues 
his talk, again, within the context of a church that has found itself divided for various reasons, uh, but, but divided still, uh, rather than uh, the church living the expression and the experience of being one singular body, they have divided into factions. Um, and Paul is trying to make the point that uh, part of the reason why those factions have become a part of the church experience is because of what people's faith was being severally based on. Uh, that is that the faith of some were based on one particular thing or upon one particular personality while uh, another person or another group, uh, their faith was being kind of founded on uh, some other particular thing or some other particular personality. And on and on it went until uh, rather than having the singular body, you just had, you had all different kinds of, um, uh, of religious expressions like within the body of the church. And so Paul, uh, like we talked about last week, his preaching was meant to provoke a faith that was based not on some kind of human wisdom. See, what Paul was not was Paul was not a kind of first century self-help guru, right? Paul didn't have uh, this platform where people were going to him, uh, looking to him as uh, you know, the guru who had discovered some thing that had largely been inaccessible to others, right? And so you, you'd go to somebody like Paul to discover what he had discovered. Paul didn't look at himself that way. He didn't look at the faith, um, the, the, his faith, what his faith was grounded in and what he wanted for the church's faith to be grounded in uh, as 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 finding its origin within this sphere of human wisdom. Uh, but rather, he preached a faith that was founded on God's power, which was, which was pointedly demonstrated in the cross. And so we pick up on uh, verse 6 here. And Paul says, um, So we do, however, speak a wisdom among the mature, but not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom. Okay, remember I said um, that there is this thing Paul here describes as God's hidden wisdom that is accessible only to those who are spiritually minded. And so Paul says, we speak this hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age, Paul's age, knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. Now, um, to begin with, Paul here declares that uh, it is the mature that receive God's wisdom, okay? It is those who are spiritually mature uh, who are able to receive the wisdom that's been imparted to them. And so I think a relevant question for us is, well then, what does it mean to be mature? How many of you are mature? 
I'm sure when we think about maturity, the first thing we think about is someone's age, right? And certainly age often plays a part uh, in a person's maturity, but we don't stop there, do we? Right, because some of you are quite old, but not quite mature, right? You're the fun uncle, right? Everybody's glad to have at the party. So we also, when we think about maturity, we also think about how somebody acts, right? Uh, maturity in, uh, in our world, you know, is often tied to, to law. Uh, that is, you have to be a certain age before you can drive a car, right? The, the developmental maturity is not the primary emphasis of whether or not somebody ought to drive a car. If it were, some of you would have been asking for a ride to church this morning, right? Because you still haven't quite got there where, you know, no, I'm just kidding. Um, so age plays a part in, in, our, in our legal system, says, okay, uh, when you're a particular age, you can do this or that. Uh, but then beyond that, maturity is also somewhat regulated by age. That is, it's one thing because I've turned 16 years old that I get my license and I've been given the privilege of driving my car around town. Uh, but I have to continue to demonstrate maturity, right? It's not just simply my age that grants me that privilege. I can, I can lose that privilege depending on how I act. And so, so maturity is, it, it's, it is often um, attributed to something like age, but I think it's far more refined and far more specific or far more pointed to how a person acts. And so when we talk about something like spiritual maturity, are we talking about how long someone has been a Christian or how many hours they've uh, invested in Bible lessons, how long they've been accumulating knowledge? Is, is that what we would understand to be the definition of spiritual maturity, right? Because Paul says the mature receive God's wisdom. And so what does it mean to be mature? What does it mean to be in a place where you can actually receive this wisdom? Well, I think maturity in Paul's mind here has far less to do with the amount of time a person has been a Christian or how many Bible classes or religious courses they've completed. It has a lot more to do with the quality of their faith, right? And that is like how tied in is a person's faith to the crucified Christ? And what is the tangible expression of that faith? Uh, you know, we can talk about faith all we want, but ultimately a big question regarding our faith is, well, what is your faith grounded in, right? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. In what is your faith grounded? Because that's going to determine the quality of that faith. And then if your faith, I think we could presume that if your faith is truly and solidly in the crucified Christ, in the event of the cross, and all of that means, there is going to be an expression of that faith that is going to demonstrate a kind of spiritual maturity. Now, it's interesting. Paul could have very easily uh, presented to the church two people uh, one, of, one of whom was a, a scholar of Scripture. 
who had invested his or her entire life in the searching and the studying of the scriptures, and Paul could have described that person as being spiritually immature. I mean, they knew all the ins and outs. In fact, they had memorized even whole entire passage of scripture because their whole academic pursuit revolved around an acquirement of knowledge. But nothing had actually transpired in their heart to where they surrendered themselves to the crucified Christ. And so therefore, Paul would have described this person as spiritually immature, while on the other hand, Paul could have presented someone who was uneducated, who was illiterate, but who fully and personally embraced and embodied a life that was surrendered to Jesus. And Paul would say, this is a spiritually mature person. So for Paul, spiritual maturity was embodied in our thoughts, our attitudes, and our behaviors. When Paul thought about maturity, it was never about how much academic knowledge a person had acquired. I mean, think about it. The people that Paul was writing to, they didn't even have a Bible, <laughs> right? There was, there was no full, complete thing like what we call the Bible that was available to the everyday person. Much of it hadn't even been written yet. And so it wasn't about how much Bible knowledge they had acquired, how much or how successfully they had engaged in some particular academic pursuit, uh, or whether they had, and this was a very popular notion in Paul's day, this idea of kind of tapping into some mysterious wisdom that the elites and the socialites had tapped into, and that somehow seemed to escape the common masses of people, right? Like when you experienced um, this, this sort of esoteric kind of wisdom, it's like, oh, well, now you have arrived. Now you were something, now you were something, now, you're, now you had a, a status in society. And Paul says spiritual maturity has nothing to do with that. It, just, it has nothing to do with class or social status. Now we could ask now what were, or what would be some of the problems when it comes to spiritual maturity versus spiritual immaturity within um, our churches, right? Because like what Paul was witnessing was he was witnessing spiritual immaturity. We find Paul using language when it came to the life of the Christian where he would describe something like an infantile Christian, right? A, 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 a Christian who was, uh, was like an infant in their faith as contrasted with a Christian who was mature in their faith. And we see manifestations of infantilism as well as maturity within uh, the church. And if we're not careful, we're going to see the same kinds of things happening here. Um, uh, for one thing, infants, if you think about infants, infants are jealous and judgmental. Uh, certainly one of the problems with the Corinthian church is this manifestation of how people were jealous toward others. Uh, you'd have one Christian who was jealous of another Christian's gifting or calling. Um, and, and, and as far as Paul's concerned, it's like that is, that is an infantile way of being a Christian, where you're looking at somebody else and you're jealous because of, what, um, because of what they're doing or because of what they have. The mature are different, right? The mature rejoice 
over the differences between other people's giftings and callings. Uh, the mature are content with their own gifts and callings. And so we, you know, the, the one who is an infant might say, um, why did God give that person five bags of money and gave me only one bag of money? How many of you have ever said that before? That's right, nobody wants to admit that one. But the mature says, what a blessing that God has entrusted that person with five bags of money. And I hope I can prove to be faithful with the one bag he has given me. You see the difference between an infantile kind of Christianity and one that is mature. Um, infantile Christianity is also judgmental. Judgmental that, uh, or toward another person that hadn't yet attained uh, their self-perceived idea of class or elitism. You know, the infantile person might say, I can't believe how dull and stupid that person is. Would you believe that there are some in the world of church that when they think about other people in their church, they think, how can that person be so dull and stupid? Have you ever done that? I've done that. That's not maturity. That's immaturity. The mature person asks God, help me bring someone along who hasn't yet experienced the goodness of who you are. Give me patience. Help me to be gracious and kind. Help me to be quick to listen and slow to speak. We live in a particular cultural moment where there is all kinds of tension with, uh, I think, a desire for people to be known as virtuous. And this has even crept into the world of the church. And so you have people that want to demonstrate a kind of maturity or elitism. And so in order for them to find themselves counted among the well-informed or the elite, they constantly need to signal just how virtuous they are. And oftentimes you'll find in the same kind of person that their inner attitude toward others is something along the lines of, you know, I can't believe how uninformed that person is. I can't believe how, un, uh, in the popular vernacular of today, how unwoke that person is with regard to whatever it may be that is being talked about. And that is spiritual immaturity, right? To look at what differentiates us in that way. The spiritual mature, what this person does is they ask God, God, help me to be an agent of justice for the marginalized and the disenfranchised that you bring across my path. Give me eyes to see as you see and help me to love in the way that you love. And may my life be an example to others of your perfect righteousness. Another thing that we see in this question of spiritual maturity is that infants stoke rivalry and dissension 
in the body. Spiritual immaturity is often marked by a desire to stoke rivalry and to create dissension within the body of Christ. Remember, the body of Christ was intended to be a singular entity comprised of diverse members, right? And what the infantile person does within the body of Christ is they seek to undermine instead of unify. They love to complain and criticize where the mature are looking for opportunities to cooperate and to create. So infants stoke rivalry and dissension within the body. And then finally, infants classify people into those who are elite and those who are inferior, right? The infantile has this idea, I possess a superior knowledge to you, right? Again, differentiating themselves from others. This feeling that my superior knowledge means you and I, we can't share the same space. We actually find within the world of the church even how people are being excluded from certain spaces because of particular ideas that they may hold. Did you know that there are those who would be regarded as capable of such harm and violence through ideas that they have that if given the opportunity to express them, it would be dangerous. And so therefore, we see, we certainly see in the world outside, people canceled for something they've said, a speaker disinvited because of an idea that he or she may have, an employee is fired because of public outrage, and we find less and less and less space for actual dialogue to occur between people. I know this is kind of going back to a world that we'd never want to revisit, but I couldn't help but think as I was kind of fleshing this out in my own mind, how giddy do you think the devil got when masks and vaccines were worth talking about more than the cross in our churches? How giddy do you think he got? It's like, oh boy, this is better than I ever thought. Right, because what did we see? We, see we, we, we saw how various ideas about masks made us hate one another. You remember that? That wasn't that long ago. We saw how a political election destroyed lifelong friendships and relationships. When did Donald Trump and Joseph Biden become more important figures than Jesus Christ? When did that happen? This division between, and we even gave them names, right? The vaxxed and the unvaxxed. Infants classify people into elites and inferiors. They leverage what wisdom they feel like they have attained to look down upon and to despise those that they suppose have not attained their level. But here's what Paul says 
about the wisdom of this age and the rulers of this age. He says of them, they are doomed, right? The rulers of this age and this verse are especially called out as possessing a kind of wisdom that is wholly different from true wisdom, right? He said, they didn't recognize the wisdom of God or else they would have not crucified our Lord Jesus. Can you imagine when we think about the rulers of this age, that the presidents, the prime ministers, the sultans and kings, the presidents of universities, the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, social media influencers, authors, screenwriters, congressional representatives and senators, and Supreme Court justices. Right now, each of them may occupy a place of authority and rule, and their wisdom and power might be held up as greater than that of the common person. But according to Paul, the wisdom of the age that they represent and that they embrace is doomed to pass away. The word that he uses describes that which comes to nothing. It is utterly and completely destroyed. For the Corinthians, the temptation would certainly exist to believe that they were, in their day, a modern people who were more sophisticated and more wise than those from years past. Progress had certainly been made in the areas of discovery and philosophy. And there was a kind of faith that could rest in the wisdom of this age, as Paul calls it. We today, we experience the exact same kind of prejudice, where we often discard what is old for what is new. We hold ourselves up as wiser, as better, as more sophisticated than the ancients. And we put our faith in the progress that we've made in areas of discovery and philosophy. And so we too, we must be reminded that the wisdom which comes from God, which was powerfully demonstrated in the event of the crucifixion, it stands in contrast to the wisdom of this age, which is doomed to disintegrate when it is properly judged for what it is. And so the wisdom of God is contrasted against the wisdom of this age. Paul says, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery. Isn't it funny how we expect God to be as wise as we are? If you were to ask somebody, hey, what do you suppose God thinks about this? Is that person not likely to respond with something quite similar to the way they think about that thing? Isn't it uncanny how God's wisdom is often so similar to ours? (laughs) And this is contrasted against the wisdom of the rulers of this age. I mean, think about it. In Paul's age, you had an extremely refined and robust And, uh, I mean, just incomparable form of religion within the subculture of Judaism, right, that had been around for a long, long time. It was rich 
So you had the very best religion. You also had probably the very best political enterprise the world had ever known in the dominance of the Roman Empire. And so with the very best religion, with the very best political system, we found a rejection of God's wisdom. This wisdom, Paul says, was known by God before there was any such thing as an age or time. This hidden wisdom is in a mystery. And you wonder, well, how... How do we understand this mystery? Paul is not saying that it is entirely incomprehensible. It doesn't mean that we can't understand it. It just means that we can't discover it on our own and that we need God to reveal it to us. One commentator, David Garland, said, this message that Paul is talking about is hidden mystery because it can be known only through God's revelation. It is now an open secret, open because God has revealed it, and a secret because the revelation both reveals the mystery and obscures it at the same time. Well, what does that mean? Well, as an example, like we can look at the, uh, this one account in the Gospels, uh, uh, which is reflected in various accounts, but Luke chapter 18, verses 31 to 34, says Jesus took the 12, right, his 12 closest followers, the big 12, the 12 disciples, he took them aside and he told them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he, that is speaking of himself, the Son of Man will be handed over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked, insulted, spit upon, and after they will flog him, they will kill him, and he will rise the third day. And listen to the reaction. They understood none of these things. The meaning of the saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. You see, they had not yet received the Spirit of God. They were not yet the spiritual beings that they were ultimately going to become, and so they are unable to ascertain for themselves the mystery of God. And it was only after God had fully revealed through the event of the cross, through the crucifixion of the Christ, that this mystery became known, but is still only accessible to those who have been given the gift of the Spirit. This wisdom that Paul talks about is a wisdom that God predestined before the ages for our glory. And so what we find revealed here is that this mystery of God founded in the cross is not God's plan B. Do you know that when it came to the cross, when it came to the Lamb of God crucified for all the world, this was not God scrambling together an emergency action because we screwed up. No, before the foundations of time were ever laid, God had in his mind this plan that was intended for our benefit. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom because if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so it shows that the wisdom of this world is not just simply harmless or inert, but rather the wisdom of this world 
it led to the crucifixion of Christ, demonstrating the degree to which it actually opposes the wisdom of God. And so when we consider the wisdom of the world, let's not just consider it something that is powerless, you know, inert, unable to accomplish or do anything, or that's something that's just kind of rather harmless. No, it opposes the very wisdom of God. And then we go to verse 9, where we find that there is an infinite gap between what humans think and what God knows. Look at what Paul uses to describe the gap between what humans think and what God knows. He says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has imagined. Anybody here to subscribe to Disney Plus? I'm watching this the series on Loki, right? This little kind of subset of, you know, all the Avenger and Marvel stuff. And I sit there, I'm watching, and I, the prevailing thought in my mind is, who thought up this stuff, right? Like, who made this up? I mean, it's incredible. And, and, and I mean, that's just one series. I mean, you take that and you add it together with a storehouse of television miniseries and movies and novels, everything that's been made and all the things that haven't even been made yet. I mean, the imagination of humankind is incredible. But compare it to what is in the mind of God. Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has conceived, no heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. You know, somebody comes up to me and says, hey, you know, what do you think heaven is like? I don't even want to have that conversation. You know what I'm going to, if I, if I try to describe eternity with God, if I try to describe something like heaven to you, I'm going to do it such an injustice. <laughs> because it's beyond what my eye has seen. You know, it's like, I, we, we tend to think, it's like, well, you know, for me, I mean, it's just, it's a place where you, you play golf all day, right? What'd you score today? I scored an 18. The golfers will get that one. Right, we think of heaven, we think of eternity with God as just, you know, something that's a little better than what we have here. But there is an infinite gap between what you and I think and what God knows. And this gap is bridged through the work of God's Spirit. So how can we know what we could never have known? How do we bridge this gap? If there are things that can only be received and understood by those who are mature, how do we bridge this gap? Paul says it is done through the work of God's Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that bridges this gap. It says, now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit. Since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except his Spirit within him? 
In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who comes from God so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. In verses 10 and 11 here, we learn that the Spirit is the same in essence as God. The Spirit is fully and completely God. There is a principle in theological and philosophical circles that says like is known by like. On the playground, we used to say, it takes one to know one. Like is known by like. The Spirit of God is said to know everything in the mind of God because what we have to understand about the Spirit of God is that he himself is God. And then in verse 12, Paul says, we, those of us who have put our faith in the crucified Christ, we have received that same Spirit of God. The coming of the Spirit is a fulfillment of Jesus' promise. Jesus says, I am going to go away, but I am going to send another just like I am to you. And this is going to be for your benefit. He's going to walk alongside you. He's going to teach you all things. He's going to be a comforter and a counselor who expresses the things of God in and through your lives. That is, that when a person puts their faith in Jesus, a kind of metamorphosis occurs where before the spiritual part of us was dead, it now becomes animated by God's spirit and we become spiritually alive. And so this resuscitation of our spirit is what enables us, first of all, to comprehend the hidden knowledge of God that Paul talks about here. The hidden knowledge of God, which we discover in the cross and the crucified Christ. And in the final verses of this chapter, Paul continues to show that the things of God can only be received by truly spiritual people. The things of God are foolishness to those who don't have God's spirit. So we need to, as Paul closes out this chapter with these words, we need to seek to have the mind of Christ. And so let me just caution that we have to be careful not to become guilty ourselves of spiritual elitism. Because the Corinthians would have imagined themselves as having had or attained a special status among other believers. So if you're here today and you feel like your spiritual star has risen or that you are somehow in some way not like or better than the others, that is probably evidence for just how unspiritual you are actually being. And so what we want to do is we want to keep elitism out there in the world where it belongs. It has no place here. We want to seek the mind of Christ. 
Gordon Fee says, the spirit should identify God's people in such a way that their values and worldview are radically different from the wisdom of this age. They do know what God is about in Christ. They do live out the life of the future in the present age that is passing away. They are marked by the cross forever. As such, they are the people of the Spirit who stand in bold contrast to those who are merely human and do not understand the scandal of the cross. Being spiritual does not lead to elitism. It leads to a deeper understanding of God's profound mystery, redemption through a crucified Messiah.